Welcome back to another episode of Daula, New Histories of the Medieval Middle East. Brought to you by an intrepid group of postdoctoral researchers working on history writing in the 15th century Cairo Sultanate, Daula is all about breaking free from the ivory tower and showcasing our exciting research. My name is Kenneth Gowdy, and if you've been listening to our previous episodes, you'll know that we're in the midst of taking a stroll through the lives and careers of the historians that we're working on. In this episode, I'm joined by Rehab Ben-Othman, who has graciously agreed to take the time to introduce us to her historian. Rehab, thanks for joining me. Now, before we really dig deep into your historian, Ibn Taghraberdi, and his life and career, I'd like to take a moment to find out a little bit more about your background. What was your previous research on, and how did it lead you to Ibn Taghraberdi? Yeah, good question. (laughs) So, my prime research interests are in the history of gender and uh, the history of emotion and cultural history. Actually, I wrote a dissertation on women during the Circassian rule, which is entitled La femme et les ulama, au temps des mamelouks circassiens, and which deals with the whole representation of women in the legal and historiographical discourses. So how did you end up working on Ibn Taghraberdi in this project? Well, when I was working on women, I've tried to disentangle the dominant narratives constructed about them, and more precisely, to examine the different forms of textual and narrative appropriation of female experiences and condition. Now with Ibn Taghraberdi, I'm continuing the same work. I mean, I'm applying the same analytical approach still in a broader context and with respect to the cultural production of Dawlat al-Atraq and its order. So you're a historian, Ibn Taghraberdi. What can you tell us about his life? Actually, Abul Mahasen, Jamal al-Din, Yusuf Ibn Taghraberdi, is a 15th century court historian. He was born in 1410 and he died in 1470. So he was born in the prestigious palace of Manjak al-Yusfi in Cairo to a modest emir of a Rumi stock whose name is Tari Bardi al-Yashbuawi. The latter emir was a former Mamluk of Sultan Barkuk, who successfully moved up the ladder to become the commander-in-chief of the Egyptian armies in 1407, then the governor of Damascus in 1410, under the successor of Barkuk and Nasser Faraj. What happened to Ibn Taghraberdi? When he died in 1412, the young Yusuf was barely three years old. He was brought up by his uterine sister, Hajar, who was married within notable scholarly families, Hanafi and Chafi'i scholarly families. She was indeed married with the chief judge, Muhammad ibn al-Adim al-Hanafi, then with the chief judge, Abd al-Rahman al-Bulqini al-Shafi'i. How did being raised in such a scholarly environment affect the young Ibn Taghraberdi? So being raised within a notable scholarly families as as I have mentioned, Abu Mahasan has received a thorough grounding in the religious and literary disciplines. For instance, in the biographical sketch devoted to him, we are informed that Ibn Taghraberdi started his training with memorizing Quran and learning Arabic grammar and linguistics like any young student at that time. He also learned Hadith, Hanafi jurisprudence, literature, and Ilm al-Mantaq, or the science of logic. Apart from that, we know that he studied under renowned scholars like Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, Ibn Arabshah, and al-Maqrizi and many others. So did he only have a traditional religious education, or did the fact that he was the son of a prominent emir have any impact on the type of training that he received as a young, as a young man? Actually, we are informed that 
Ibn Tulaybirdi's religious training went hand in hand with another practical training in horsemanship and martial arts. In fact, it's due to his father's comrade from the Zahiriya group, I mean, the manumitted Mamluks of Sultan Barkuk, that Ibn Tariberi gained mastery of horsemanship and related arts. So his father's old comrades had an important influence on his upbringing. His father's comrades played an actual role in shaping his future vocation and career of a historian. Do you mean beyond teaching him martial skills? Indeed, they didn't not only reconcile him to his father's memory or to his Turkish roots, but most importantly, they, ins- they ensured him access into the fascinating world of the Kering court. How did he benefit from this access to court? Barabin Tariberi came to discover his life vocation when he met first the first time the court historian and prominent Hanafi scholar Badreddin Al-Aini, who became later his master in the trade, I mean, in the discipline of history. We can say that Ibn Tariberi was kind of gripped and marked by Al-Aini's achievement in Barsbay court, more in particular by the way the latter placed history at the service of the ruler and his court, and how all this ensured him a prominent position, that of being a boon companion and a private advisor of Sultan Barsbay. It's against this background, and precisely it's through the inspiring achievement of Al-Aini that Ibn Tariberi grew fond of history. Did any other historians play a particularly prominent role in Ibn Taghribirdi's decision to become a historian? Apart from Laini, there is another prominent figure by whom Ibn Taghribirdi was trained, namely the renowned Egyptian historian Taqiyya Din al-Makrizi. Aside from his educational and intellectual background, do we know anything about his personal life? I ask because one of the things that Mustafa and I touched upon in a previous episode was how difficult it can be to find information about the personal lives of our historians. We know that compared to other 15th century historian and scholars, Ibn Tariberdi has lived a comfortable life. This was actually due to his social status, being a member of Awlad al-Nas, or a son of a manumitted Mamluk. And more in particular, this was due to the fact that he was the son of a notable emir, one who was closely bound to the household of Sultan Barkuk through marriage alliances. For instance, we know that his father's cousin, Shirin al-Rumir, was the concubine of Sultan Barkuk and the mother of his successor, Nasser Faraj. More precisely, it enabled him to preserve his assets and some advantages under the rule of succeeding sultans. Now we can even get a better idea about how he lived comfortably through the endowment deed of his mausoleum or turba, which is located next to the funerary complex of Al-Ashraf Inal. In fact, the layout and the yearly expenses of Ibn Taribirdi's mausoleum bear evidence to his high social standing and considerable fortune. Presumably his wealth made it possible for him to avoid the competition for teaching and official positions, which was so endemic in the 15th century. His wealth enabled him to be entirely devoted to his scholarly projects, and another way to be a full-time historian. Given that he was able to support himself as an independent historian and to devote himself fully to his scholarly pursuits, what were his main works and what was his legacy as a historian? Well, regarding M. Taribirdi's works, I would say that Ibn Taribirdi tried to follow the dominant intellectual mainstream 
So like many scholars of his time, Ibn Tariberdi tried to claim an encyclopedic knowledge and so he penned several works touching on variegated disciplines such as history, literature and music. When it comes to his historiographical works, we know that Ibn Tariberdi has started out his career of a historian with writing a biographical dictionary, which he named Al-Manhal al-Safi wal-Mustawfi ba'da al-Wafi. As the title indicates, the latter dictionary is a continuation of As-Safadi's biographical dictionary Al-Wafi bil-Wifayat, in which our author, Amin Ibn Tariberdi, recounts the lives and achievements of roughly 3,000 historical characters from all over the Islamic world, including rulers, emirs, and scholars. Do we know anything about why Ibn Taqibardi decided to write Al-Manhal al-Safi? Well, the initial idea behind his biographical dictionary, or let's say behind Ibn Taqibardi's first undertaking, was, as demonstrated by Julien Loiseau, to reconstruct his father's network from the Zahiriya faction. In fact, best, in best part of the biography listed in his Manhal are of former Mamluks, of Sultan Barkouk. More than that, incomplete biographies in the latter work show that Ibn Taribadi stopped engaging with his dictionary after the death of the last living member of the Bahiriya, who is Sultan Ashraf Inal. Did Ibn Taribadi write any chronicles? The second work, and perhaps the most known one written by Ibn Taribadi, is his monumental chronicle or dynastic history entitled Al Nujum al Zahira fi Muluk Misr wal Qahira. Ibn Taribadi started writing it during Sultan Jaqmaqul and he dedicated it to his son and heir Muhammad. Now the third main work of Ibn Taribadi is his second chronicle, which he entitled Hawadith al-Duhur fi al ayyami wa-Shuhur. The latter chronicle represents a continuation of al-Maqwizi's chronicle As-Suluk al-Duhur al-Muluk. When compared to the Nujum, al-Hawadith provides more detailed yearly accounts on Egypt, spanning from 1442, al-Makrizi's death, to 1470. Did he write any other historical works? Aside from these commonly known compilation, he penned other works like Nushat al-Ra'i, Fatarikh, which is a chronicle dealing with the history of Egypt, and al-Bahr al-Zakhir, fi ilm al-Awakhir, also a chronicle. Apart from that, Batari wrote also several abridgments for his works and for other historian works. As can be seen here, Ibn Taribadi was a prolific historian. Is his reputation based primarily on the amount that he wrote rather than the quality? His authoritative and quite detailed accounts on the Turkish ruling elite, on courtly life and political struggles, earned him wide recognition and the vivid interest of modern scholars for whom he was arguably the memorialist and the foremost historian of Dawlat al-Atraq. You have already mentioned some of the important historians with whom Ibn Taghribadi studied. Could you say a little bit more about his relationship with them? As I have mentioned before, Ibn Taghribadi was trained in history by two leading scholars. On the one hand, by the Hanafi scholar and polymath Badruddin al-Aini, and on the other hand, by Taqiyyuddin al-Makrizi. Both didn't have the same impact on Ibn Taribadi. In what way? It's true that Al-Aini prominent position in Bansbay court and the role that he played in terms of political guidance as the Sultan's advisor was somewhat the inspiring spark which brought forth Ibn Taribadi's historical vocation. But Al-Makrizi remained the one who marked him the most. How so? In many respects, the latter has left an undeniable mark on his disciple, which can be seen in many levels. What are these levels? 
On the personal level, for instance, Bentari Birdis appears to have maintained a very close relationship with Al-Makrizi rather than with Al-Aini. I mean, with respect to Al-Makrizi and the Bentari Birdi, we know that Al-Makrizi used to visit his young disciple and that they both used to discuss issues related to history. According to Ibn Tariburi, this fruitful discussion with his master prompted the latter historian Amin al-Makrizi to reconsider his knowledge about the Turkish ruling elite. So we can say that the relationship was a mutually beneficial one. Is there any textual or methodological evidence in Ibn Tariburi's writings which also attests to the closeness of this relationship? Now, on the textual level, we can say that like in real life, al-Makrizi was more present in Ibn Tariburi's text than al-Aini. I mean, more cited, especially in Al-Manhan al-Safi and Al-Nujum al-Zahira. For instance, I've recorded 86 occurrences evoking Al-Makrizi and ranging from simple references to direct quotation. How does Alaini compare to this? I found just 15 instances engaging with Alaini and his tarikh al-Juman. We have the impression that uh, the shadow of Al-Makrizi is kind of lying over Ibn Taliburdi's writing. There is another important point that deserves attention. And what point is that? I have noticed that Ibn Taliburdi dealt differently with Al-Makrizi's writing. Oh? When he presented extracts from a suluk, he, he didn't restrict himself with apl- applying uh, the same meticulous uh, referencing system and which consists of using concluding and introductory formula, he went even further and employed a more complex quoting pattern, especially what I've termed the dialogic quotation. What do you mean by dialogic quotation? That in many cases, Ibn Tariburdi's banded quotation from Al-Makrizi with a direct speech commentary. This direct speech commentary has a kind of evaluating and approving function, for oftentimes, they are like set in argumentative context, and they are used either to corroborate Al-Makrizi's statement or to challenge them. So this alternation, Al-Makrizi says, and I say, gives us the impression that Ibn Tariburi is sort of engaging in a fictional dialogue with his master Al-Makrizi, or even more, that he is continuing the long discussion that he used to have with him when he was alive. What is the significance of this approach? But Ibn Taribadi didn't follow the common patterns of text reuse. He didn't use quotation from his masterwork for the common purposes, I mean to fill some missing data about characters or events. Instead, he used them to challenge his master and at the end to negotiate and build up his authorial authority. That's really interesting. So essentially what you're saying is that Ibn Taghdaburdi is co-opting the prestige and the fame of his master al-Makrizi as a tool to try and buttress his own claims to authority. Do you have a concrete example of this that you could give us? One, uh, one example of this could be his account on Barco Crane in Al-Nujum al-Zahira. In the latter account, Ibn Taghdaburdi alternates over six pages, he alternates quotation from Al-Makrizi's suluk with his own commands in order to criticize his master and to pinpoint his deficiencies concerning the Turkish ruling elite and the state affairs. Does this mean that Ibn Taghdaburdi is really using the inside knowledge that he has of the military elite and of the court due to his own background to set himself apart from other historians of the 15th century? Well, it can be said that Ibn Taribadi's familiarity with the ruling circles 
was jointly the key of his success as a historian and the real motive behind the criticism of his contemporaries like Asahawi. Ibn Taribadi's familiarity with the Kenyan court was to a great extent projected in his work and it deeply marked his historical perspective and accounts of events. This Kothi orientation or Kothi perspective is quite entrenched and embedded in the bulk of his work. Still, they displays mostly in his dynastic history and Nujum al-Zahira. In what way? And Nujum was the one which was entirely dedicated to a courtly audience and in which we can see the, the courtly perspective and orientation of Ibn Taliburdi. First, this chronicle is the only one that was the only work of Ibn Taliburdi that was associated to a courtly figure, namely to Sultan Jaqmaqsan and Heir Muhammad. Second, if we consider the basic structure of this chronicle, which was designedly divided in a self-contained units or section of corresponding to different sultans' rule, we can see how it was, how this chronicle was managed, was somehow managed for the purpose of reading in courtly session. Ibn Taliburdi himself explicitly states in the Nujum that he arranged events in, the, in this chronicle according to different sultans' rules in the manner of a collected biographies of Egypt ruler, which he would eventually end with the reign of Muhammad, presumed successor of Sultan Jahmaq. Are there any other indications of the Najum al-Zahra being written in a courtly context, or for a courtly context? Among other aspects of the courtly orientation of the Najum is the frequent citation of Turkish words. In fact, the Lata chronicle is interspersed with Turkish words for which a phonetic transcription and an Arabic translation are always provided. Well, Ibn Taliburdi's keen interest on the Turkish language and a second place on the Persian language, because we can find also some Persian words that are explained and translated in Ibn Taliburdi's Nujum. This interest to Turkish it meets in a way in another way the requirement and the expectation of the, court, the courtly entourage or audience. As we know, the Turkish language was the official language of the Kayan court. Ibn Taliburdi's courtly orientation displays also through the constant or frequent references to court customs, to the symbols of royal sovereignty, Sha'ar al-Mamlak or Sha'ar al-Mulk, and also in the meticulous attention that the author gives to the court protocols and ceremonial, also to the ranks of different emirs and also to the military trooper. Also, we should mention the critical comments that he makes, that Ibn Taliburdi makes about the non-compliance of late Turkish ruler and their paramount with the courtly customs, which he often refers to as al-ada of royal customs, adat al-muluk. So, one among other courtly features of the Nujum is this critical comments that he makes and the concerns that he conveys about the abolition of several symbols of the royal sovereignty, like race courses, which were abolished by Barkuk, the visit to Syriacus, Syriacus, which was abolished by his son and successor Nasser Faraj, and many other rituals. When uh, we go, when we read Anujum al-Zahira, 
and we like chart this uh, references and uh, this critical commands and brief notes that he gives. We have the we have the impression that Ibn Taribari is sort of tracing out the history of Kairin, of the Kairin court. Is this courtly orientation exclusive to the Nujum Azahra or do we see it in other works by Ibn Taqriburdi? And Nujum wasn't Ibn Taqriburdi's only work who was which was courtly oriented. Because when we read the Hawadith al-Duhur, we can see that this Ibn Taqriburdi's second chronicle or, or his continuation of uh, Al-Makfizi's chronicle is not less courtly oriented than in Nujum. And this for several reasons. First, frequent intertextual references to Hawadith al-Duhur in Al-Nujum al-Zahira, which in some cases amounts to three references within the same page and which look like the modern footnotes in which Ibn Taribodi, like says, for further details, see Al-Hawadith. This suggests Al-Hawadith was somehow written or at least directed to a courtly audience. Beyond this, do we see, for instance, Ibn Taghaberdi's interest in Turkish words? Does that reappear in the Hawadith? In the Hawadith, unexpectedly, we can also find similar allusion to Turkish words, which are also followed by an Arabic translation just like in the Nujum. For instance, when he mentions one of the Turkish emirs, whose name is Bini Bazir, Ibn Taribodi specifies in a similar fashion as in the Nujum that this word, I mean Bini Bazir, can be translated in Arabic as Ghalid al-Raqaba, the thick-necked man. Does the concern that he demonstrates in Nujum al-Zahra for court ritual and ceremony reappear in the Hawadith as well? In the Hawadith, Ibn Taribodi conveys the same concerns about the abolition of court some court rituals by succeeding sultans. For example, when he reports in the yearly account of 1451 that Sultan Jaqmaq repeat Thursday court service or Khidmat Yawm al-Khamis, he goes into great detail, listing the bulk of court ritual that was abolished by different sultans from Barkuk to Jaqmaq. And he specifies how consecutive abolition measures taken by Jaqmaq have impaired the prestige of the sultanates, which became like a vice regency. He says there's no difference between the sultanate, the Cairo sultanate, and uh, the vice regency of Ablistine. There's just difference in the title sultanate. But concretely speaking, and with regard to court rituals or the symbol of royal sovereignty, there is no differences. So we can say that Ibn Taribodi's courtly orientation and perspective weren't exclusive to his Nurum, and even his Hawadith was courtly oriented also. Now, albeit that it is a little bit of a mean question, but I feel like I really should ask you... What can you say about the reception of Ibn Taghribardi's work? Was he popular with other historians? Actually, in the current state of my research, I cannot provide a comprehensive answer to this question. For my findings about Ibn Taghribardi's reception and the afterlives of his compilation remain so far very much work in progress. 
However, what I can say is that several textual evidences testify that his annalistic history, Hawadith al-Duhur, was widely circulated in the Cameron scholarly milieu. In truth, of all his works, the latter chronicle was the most cited and referred to in subsequent historiographical compilation. More precisely, in the Sakhawis Adaw al-Nama and At-Tibr al-Masbuk, Fiddayl al-Suluk, which is a which is a continuation of Al-Maqfizi Suluk, also in a sign of his chronicles, Nuzhat al-Nufusi wal-Abdan fi tawarikh al-Zaman and Abba al-Hasr bi Abna al-Asr. Indeed, both historians showed a great interest, great interest in Ibn al-Bardi's legacy and especially on his second chronicle, to which they often referred as Hawadith or Tariq Ibn al-Bardi, and from which they apparently drew a lot to craft their historical narrative. Could you give us an example of that textual interrelationship? For instance, in some biographical sketch, Nadaw al especially in those devoted to the members of the ruling elite, like the one dedicated to Sultan Ashraf Inam, these biographical entries or sketches represent kind of fair extract from Hawadith al-Duhu. We can see clearly that As-Sakhawi is like copying from Ibn, Ibn Taribadi's Hawadith. This, is not this perhaps is not surprising because we know We owe the most complete version of Hawadith al-Duhur to As-Sakhawi, for this complete version of manuscript is actually a handwritten copy of Al-Hawadith made by As-Sakhawi, in which we can find several critical notation in the margins. Can you give us a little bit more information about Ibn Taghribardi's influence on As-Sakhawi? Ibn Taghribardi's influence on As-Sakhawi can be also seen in the latter's attempt to insert Turkish words within his biographical narrative and to propound an Arabic translation for each term, just like Ibn Tahibadi did. We can find this in some biographical entries of uh, uh, some Turkish emirs. We can find that uh, As-Sakhawi tries like, to emulate Ibn Tahibadi and insert some Turkish words and bring some explanation to them. What about in the case of Asyrafi? In Asyrafi's case, however, Ibn Taribadi's influence or presence in his text is not limited to mere references to the Hawadith, but it can also be spotted in the way the latter historian emulates Ibn Taribadi's elaborate referencing style. I mean, in the way he adopts the same system of markers used by Ibn Taribadi when he presents any quotation from any work. Asyrafi do like Ibn Taribadi. He uses The same system of markers, I mean, the concluding and uh, the introductory and the concluding formula to present his quoted material, whether in Nushat and Nufus or in, uh, in Ba'al Hasr. Still, what seems really interesting about both historians, I mean, about As-Sakhawi and As-Sayrafi, is that they knew Ibn Taribadi in person. For instance, As-Sakhawi states in Ibn Taribadi's biography that he used to visit him and that he received gifts from him. For his part, As-Sayrafi declares in his earliest writings, I mean, in, in his earliest writings in uh, Nuzhat al-Nufus, in his first chronicle, Nuzhat al-Nufusi wal-Abdan, that Ibn Taribadi was his dearest and greatest master in the trade, he means in the discipline of history. Well, As-Sayrafi speaks of Ibn Taribadi in the biography of his father, 
the biography, in the obituary of his father, I mean, Tari Bergilyash Bouhawi, and he says, he calls, he names Ibn Taribari Mahdumuna. So for him, Ibn Tar- and he says that he, Ibn Taribari was his sheikh, his greatest master in the discipline of history. Another interesting thing about these historians is that they were the fierce opponents of Ibn Taribari. Ironically, Ibn Taribari's reception in the Cairn scholarly milieu passed through this, his fierce rivals, and more in particular through his second chronicle, Hawadh al-Durur. Indeed, it's due to a Sahawi's and a Sarafi vehement criticism based on concrete instances drawn, drawn from Hawadh al-Durur that we came to know that the latter chronicle was the most widely circulated work of Ibn Taribari. I mean, at least in the first decades following his death. It's almost as if Ibn Taghribardi becomes for Asakhawi and Asairafi what Al-Makrizi was for Ibn Taghribardi, namely a way of justifying their own authority and positioning themselves as masters of their discipline, of history. This is, I think, a very good point for us to wrap up our discussion of Ibn Taghribardi. It's clear that we could keep talking about Ibn Taghribardi for a lot longer, but I think it would be very good if we were to let you get back to exploring Ibn Taghribardi's legacy in more detail. Thank you very much, Rehab. Now, hopefully you're really enjoying Daula, and if you are, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us, let us know if you've got any questions, if there's anything you'd like us to go into in more detail, or if you just want to compliment us or give us tips on how to record better. We hope you'll join us for our next episode when I'm going to be handing over the hosting duties to Mustafa and taking the time to introduce you to my historian, Burhanuddin al and my research. Until then. <laughs>